Dave, and uh, thanks to both of you for your wonderful half-hour introductions to my talk. You're going to see <laughs> you're going to see some familiar material here. Uh, let me start out by saying that uh, although the ideas in this talk are almost completely mine, and uh, especially the bad ones. I was assisted in putting this presentation together by Tim Higgins, who is a high school student who's doing a research rotation with me. He's right there. And the reason I mention that is because he was brought to my attention through the uh, intervention of Randy Isaacs, who, uh, who, set the, who brokered our meeting. So that's your membership dollars at work. Okay, so I was motivated to put to get, start putting together some of the ideas for this presentation by conversations I've had with friends, astronomers, astrophysicists, some even in my own family, about the importance of sending humans into space as opposed to non-human space exploration. So I, which one has more value? Specifically, which one might have more value for science? And then the relative place, the relative value of science versus exploration per se, just sending people into space. And partly also motivated by the fact that over a course of a number of ASA meetings that I've been to and a number of other venues, I've seen several talks about the wonders of astronomical and astrophysical investigations, some given by some people in this room. And they're fantastic. They're undeniably wonderful. But I always felt that the human side of spaceflight was getting shortchanged a little bit, that we needed somebody to come forward and say, well, look, the human side of space exploration has something to say about our place in the universe and possibly a religious perspective as well. So that's what I'm going to try to, uh, try to present today. So let me first of all start by addressing a very simple basic question. Why send people into space? Now these are not original ideas. You've heard some of these already today. The economic benefits, of course. Technology spin-offs Although I find it hard to believe that you can convince an astronaut to risk his or her life for Tang and Velcro, nevertheless, there are significant spin-offs from the space program, especially human spaceflight. Motivation and inspiration. It's been said more than once that the real legacy of the Apollo program is my generation's group of scientists and engineers. We were inspired, not necessarily to be space scientists, but to do science and engineering by the great successes of the space program through the 60s and 70s. Exploration in and of itself, another key motivating factor. And the one I, I think resonates the most purely is the last one, expanding the human experience. You've seen reference to this report already, the MIT um, Space Policy and Society Research Group that came from one of their reports about a year and a half ago, the idea of expanding the human experience. Mike Collins, one of the Apollo 11 astronauts, of course, they got asked this question a lot, why send humans into space? He said, if we have the capability to go and we don't go, we've lost something. If we are able to send people into space and yet we sit on our hands and 
just complain about how expensive it is, how dangerous it is, how risky it is, watch the use of it. Well, we've lost something as compared to actually getting up and going there. So depending on your, on your philosophy, these may be more or less compelling reasons, but they're not the reasons that I want to talk about today. I want to talk more specifically about the scientific rationale, which will somewhat coincidentally, I think, touch on the basics of a spiritual or religious reason for sending people into space as well. So I want to couch it in these terms. Is non-human space exploration, astronomy, astrophysics, robotic exploration, superior to human exploration? That is the argument that I get a lot of times, even from life scientists on Earth, even from my colleagues in the life sciences, not necessarily space life sciences, of course, but in physiology of various forms on Earth, they will say, what is the point of sending humans into space? We can get a lot more science out of non-human space flight. Well, is that true? Well, I'm going to try to make the case that it's not really true. And in fact, we need to evaluate <clears throat> this question within a broader understanding of the true value of science. So, there are two ways that I want to approach this. I want to, first of all, take a, a bit of a defensive position, which in fact involves attacking astronomy, at least on the surface of it, a little bit at first. So this is where I get to make the astronomers in the audience mad for a little while. And then I will counter that a little bit with a more offensive approach, not an offending approach, hopefully, but an approach in which I actually make a positive case for sending humans into space. So no one can doubt, especially if you see in Jennifer's talk this afternoon, incredible success of astronomical sciences in deciphering the universe. I won't go through the whole range. Jennifer's right here. She can give you a whole list of great accomplishments that help us understand the universe, star formation, where we came from, where the universe came from, how it started, how old it is, all of these great questions that help us determine our place in the universe in the bigger sense of things, in the bigger picture sense. However, let's look at it this way. Do these discoveries really help us in any practical way on Earth? Has it improved the quality of my life by knowing how old the universe is, or even by knowing how old the Earth is? Is there any practical value to these discoveries? So, like I said, this is where I get to make the astronomers a little bit annoyed. And I'm going to argue that, in fact, this is not why we do this science. Again, an idea that you've heard already today. Sorry about that. So I'm going to rephrase this in terms of a broader perspective. So here are some ideas that you may have seen before about what we can learn I'd say, what are the really important things that we can learn from observations of the universe, from astronomy and astrophysics? And some of you may be aware that this comes from a number of talks given by Jennifer over the years. I won't read this list. You can read it for yourself. But I think this is getting at what any true astronomer, certainly Christian astronomers, uh, would say are the real reasons they do astronomy. It's not for practical fallout. It's not so that we can improve necessarily our material 
well-being, but it's so that we can start to answer some of the bigger questions. And I think even an atheistic scientist or astronomer would say, you scratch them deeply enough, they will say, well, you know, we do it for the noble purpose of just understanding the universe. And that's fine. I agree with that completely. What I want to say is that that looked at in that same way, that can tell us the real value of space life sciences, as opposed to the story that we often hear in this field that there is no value to space life sciences, that is the study of humans in space, unless you're sending people into space and you have to figure out how to keep them alive and healthy and efficiently working. So that's a very functional view of human space life sciences. Certainly that's an important one, but I'm going to argue in analogy with the views that I've, that I've just showed you about the astronomical sciences that there are other, let's say, metaphysical even reasons for studying humans in space. Now, before I get into that, let me tell you a little bit about why the difficulty, some of the difficulties of doing human research in space. So this is the getting a little bit at the question of the, the issue that I hear also a lot. Uh, if, sending, if doing human space research is so important, and how, is it, how can it justify itself compared to the astro astronomical sciences, which have this tremendous productivity record? And it's certainly true. All you have to do is look up the record of, pro of publications stemming from one instrument, the Hubble Space Telescope, and it swamps the whole publication record of human space life sciences over the last 50 years. Well, here are some of the reasons. I want to say, well, space life, human space life sciences is harder than astronomy. Well, all right, I won't go that far, but I'll say that there are some difficulties. If we want to do human research in space, we are faced with all of the difficulties of doing human research on Earth in a very difficult environment. So we have a very small number of subjects. I, having had some experience in carrying out life sciences experiments in space, from a ground perspective, obviously. I can tell you horror stories about each one of these. But typically, you will propose a life sciences experiment for humans in space, and if you're lucky, in five or six years, it will fly, and if you're lucky, you will have data on three or four people. That's a very bad way to do science. So small numbers of subjects, poorly controlled. You don't know when, a, when any given astronaut crew member comes to do your experiment in space, what they've been doing for the previous two days, eight hours, whatever it might be. Have they been just off a sleep session? Have they been eating? Have they been taking motion sickness or other medication? That's a medically privileged piece of information that researchers do not have access to, and yet it's crucial. Similar to that, non-stationary in the statistical sense, in other words, the system is always changing, especially the first few days in space. People are still adapting. Because of small numbers of subjects and poorly controlled, we have high variability, poor repeatability. There are political concerns. I just mentioned one about getting information on uh, the medical status, let's say, of, of astronauts in space, simply what medications they may have taken. There's a whole slew of similar concerns and funding issues. This is a real political football within NASA is human space research. 
Nevertheless, some of us who are foolish enough to try to do human research in space have learned a few things by sending people up. So let me go over a couple of the main things. What have we learned from human space research? And I'm going to gear these towards the, other, the next two questions. What do they tell us about ourselves? What do these tell us about a creator? What are the, let's say, spiritual implications of some of these things in analogy to the list of things that I showed you before uh, has the true products of the astronomical sciences, let's say. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna emphasize the three major showstoppers for extended human space flight. Those are radiation effects, gravity effects, and what I'm gonna call people effects, and you'll see what I mean by that as we go along. So first of all, the big one, radiation. We are protected on Earth by the Van Allen radiation belts. As soon as you send people outside of low Earth orbit, they are exposed to radiation of a whole number of types, cosmic rays among others. You have long range, potential long range problems here with cancer. You don't know, you can't gauge the exposure very well. If there's a solar flare when you're on your way to Mars, for example, there's nowhere to hide and you're in deep trouble. So this is a real showstopper for extended missions. What are we gonna do about it? We're still not quite sure. But the idea, that one thing that we can draw from this is that we are protected from these effects on space by, among other things, the Van Allen radiation belt. So what does this tell us in the big picture? Well, Earth is a safe haven. We've been provided the resources of Earth, the safety of Earth, obviously the atmosphere, but something as that you may not think about as much, the Van Allen radiation belts, provides us with a safe place to live in a generally hostile universe. Okay, another one, gravity. As the physicists say, it's not just a good idea, it's the law. <laughs> when you send people into space, all sorts of things go wrong. And this is part of my, my uh, professional interest in studying uh, human adaptation to spaceflight. These are some cosmonauts who have been, uh, judging by the pictures, they probably were on the Mir space station for anywhere from six months to a year. Now, these are not the kind of people who are used to sitting around, right? But when they come back, they can barely move. They can barely support their own weight standing up on Earth. So they have gone through a significant physical deconditioning process by being in space for an extended period of time. So let me skip right onto this. What are some of the things that happen when you're in space? Well, <clears throat> here's a timeline, and here, one, three, four, five, six months. So this is duration of time in space. And on the vertical axis, is let's say intensity of the problem, so the magnitude of the effect. And you can see that there's a whole bunch of things going on. So first of all, neurovestibular function, that is the balance system, sensory motor function. How is it that you know up from down, if you're flying down in zero gravity through a space station, how do you know that things over here are where you are, where they were when you started that you haven't twisted. If there's an emergency, a fire someplace in the space station, the mental map that you have to get from one place to the other, all of these things are adversely affected by the absence of gravity. Gravity provides a stable reference frame 
for sensory motor behavior. And that goes away. The largest effects, the most immediate effects, are over within about a week. Three days, a lot of people get space motion, space motion sickness in space. Even now, about half of the first-time astronauts will get it. They will be largely better after three days. But some of these other more subtle effects are still there for a significant period of time. And then they have the reverse effects when they come back to Earth. Okay, fluids and electrolytes. If you're in weightlessness for an extended period of time, gravity is not pulling fluids down to the bottom of your body, to your legs and your feet. It tends to shift upward. It extends the vessels in your torso and chest. That's interpreted as having too much fluid, and your body excretes fluids. And so then you have problems maintaining fluid balance and electrolyte balance because you're getting rid of fluids that you really shouldn't be getting rid of. Shortly after that, cardiovascular function starts to deteriorate. It's okay as long as you stay in space because you're not fighting gravity. But fighting gravity on Earth, you're actually doing a lot of work all the time, just something as simple as standing up and sitting down. You're changing your, the, the elevation of the heart with respect to the gravity field, and that's work. That doesn't go on when you're in space. You have cardiovascular deconditioning and a whole slew of other effects. Bone and calcium is a good one. People lose calcium at, I think, about 3% <clears throat> per month as long as they are in space. And even though there's a question mark there and it shows it leveling off, we haven't found it to level off yet. It goes on for as long as people have been in space. That's a real problem. If you're going to go to Mars, it takes you six months to get there. You walk outside, you fall down and break a hip because your bone mass is deteriorated. And like I said, radiation effects is another one that keeps going on. So this is the whole slew of problems that goes on <clears throat> that go on when you're in a weightless environment. So you could say with all of this stuff, happening. What business do we have going into space at all? And yet, we do it. And people have been incredibly productive. These are pictures from a couple of Hubble servicing missions. You can see in this one in particular, the two astronauts are 180 degrees apart from each other. Something that in the early stages of a space flight, the first day or two, would tend to disorient one or the other pretty dramatically, and people have actually had spontaneous episodes of vomiting, motion sickness, when they have looked up and seen something in an attitude or a position in space where they really did not expect it to be, did not match the expectations that they've built up from an Earth gravity model. So this is the kind of thing that could really dis be disoriented, and yet after a few days in space, they're working like they've been up there their whole lives extremely productive. So what does this tell us in the bigger picture? Well, humans are incredibly adaptable. We evolved in a gravity field. We spend all of our lives in a gravity field, and yet you send people into space, and within a matter of a few days, they are able to do some of the most intricate and amazing work. Okay, so let me get to the last one on, on my list of three, people effects. So here's a very interesting picture from relatively early in the space program, testing of what they called in the 60s the manned maneuvering unit. Of course, in the 80s, it's called the astronaut maneuvering unit. And this is one of the early flights of it where an astronaut actually got in it and flew several hundreds of meters, apparently, away from the shuttle. 
Now, this is a dangerous, this is, by the way, this is a dangerous operation because if you get, first of all, he's untethered, obviously, right? That's the point of the whole thing. If he gets far away, far enough away from the shuttle, he will be in a different orbit from the shuttle. And once that happens, he's there forever because the shuttle cannot maneuver that close to a person because the thrusters are dangerous. So this, this already looks risky looking at it, knowing what could potentially go wrong, it's even more risky. But this is meant to convey a sense of isolation. So let me go back again. I have Apollo command module pilot written there, Mike Collins, who was the command module pilot on Apollo 11, the first lunar landing mission. He was the one of the three astronauts on the mission who did not land, right? They go in orbit around the moon, two go down, one stays in the command module, circles around the moon, waits for them to come back. Well, he pointed out in his fantastic book called Carrying the Fire that at the time that he was on the far side of the moon, he was the most isolated human ever in existence. Everything that he, know, that he knew, all of the people, all of humanity was back on the earth and his two colleagues were on the other side of the moon. At least they were in communication with the earth. But he was on the back side and he could not communicate with anyone. If something had happened to him back there, no one would ever know what happened. No one would ever find out. So completely isolated. Now, he said that he actually enjoyed it. He enjoyed the peace and quiet <laughs> without Mission Control Act hounding him all the time for instrument readings and stir the tanks and this and that. Nevertheless, imagine this carried to some extremes. Imagine a room this size and you take five of your closest friends come in here, shut the door, and live in here for six months, the time it would take to get to Mars, for example. Now, let alone the fact that when you land on Mars, you've got to do six months or so of work and then take another six months to get back. Let's just talk about the first six months. What do you think is going to happen to those among you six people after six months in this room? It's not going to be pleasant, necessarily. So this is another potential sh showstopper, psychosocial behavior in small groups. People are studying this right now. This could be a real issue. What is the makeup of the people that you're going to send, and how do you track impending problems if you st start to see people developing psychoses or neuroses when they're up there? Okay, so to summarize those, gravity effects, and the, yet the fact that people can function in space show that we are adaptable. Radiation effects show that Earth has a safe haven. People affects the need for fellowship, a Christian virtue, if I ever heard one. So I want to say that the biggest thing that we get from all of these things is a new perspective, a perspective on what it means to be humans, a perspective on what it means to live on the Earth. I'm not going to have time to go through all these slides. Let me talk about this one for a minute. Let's assume that this is how large Earth looks if you are on the moon. So depending on how far back you're sitting or wherever you're positioned, however it is, you, you've got yourself arranged so that when you look up in the sky, that's as large as the Earth looks. Well, if you're on Mars, that's what the Earth looks. It's that little dot up there on top of the word from. Now, you're going to tell me that you're going to send people to Mars and they're going to look back on the Earth from that distance and see that size and that's not going to change perspective on what it means to be a human, to what it means to be a resident of the, of the universe, of the earth. 
So another one that we like to talk about a lot that is really intangible, wonder and joy in creation. Astronauts talk about this a lot. Ed White, the first American astronaut to walk in space, did not want to come back in. This, is, this again, is incredibly dangerous. NASA did not own up to it until, until many years later. But they had problems because when they get outside, the suit is inflated and they have to get back inside the spacecraft and hunch themselves down to close the hatch. That's really hard to do. Ed White was an Olympic-class athlete, and he could barely do it. People have almost died doing this. And yet, he was having a great time outside. Didn't even want to come in. Here you see some Skylab astronauts monkeying around. And I can tell you from personal experience, not being in space, but being weightless on NASA's Vomit Comet, it's an experience like nothing else. So I can only imagine what it must be like to be in space. So let me summarize this, this famous quote from T.S. Eliot. The end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. The real value, the real benefit of us going into space is to look back on us as humans, our place on the Earth, and understand what it really means to be human and to be here, to be God's creatures on Earth. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's I, the the elephant in the room is so the so the question is what how do do recent decisions to stop the to confirm the the, the cessation of the shuttle program and to uh, at least cut back on the Ares program uh, human space U.S. funded human spaceflight especially long duration spaceflight how does that relate to what we've been talking about. Um, I think the elephant in the room, as you rightly pointed out, is that none of us have really talked about, well, you talked about it, actually, the government role in these things. But I think it's a, it's a great question. We can all make a case that there is a spiritual, metaphysical, religious, however you want to put it, wider, broader perspective and reason for going into space. But does that mean that the government should fund that aspect of things? We could make the case that quite the opposite. Maybe they should only fund the practical aspects of sending people into space. And now that we're talking, now that we have a wonderful realization from seeing our talks today that the real importance is something else, maybe the government shouldn't be involved. I don't know. I can't. Personally, of course, I'd like to see them fund it. It pays the, it pays the bills. But, I, but from a strict policy point of view, I don't know where to come down on that. Yeah, they are. They are starting. So they've drawn, there are a couple of analog 
environments, nuclear submarines, wintering over in Antarctica, things like that. And we've drawn on, on that kind of work. And I don't know the details, but I believe they are now starting to look at just, just what you referred to. The question was whether NASA is looking at multicultural aspects of assembling crews for long-duration flights. And I know that they're very much interested in issues like what is the proper combination of people, and uh, are you better off having people from, let's say, separate cultural groups as opposed to a more homogeneous group? I have no idea. Those, as you can imagine, very difficult research to do. Additional questions? Yeah. Uh, what, no, it's you. <laughs> That's right. Right. I think right. I think it's a great point. Right. Well, that's why I put it up at the, at the very end. Certainly, you can't look at that and think. It, it's hard to imagine 40 years ago that the, the impact that this had on changing the perspective. I can, make, I, I can draw, I draw this out and connect it to what, I was, to, to what I've been talking about, the value of sending humans into space. You wouldn't have this picture if, if you had not sent humans into space. This took them completely by surprise when they looked out the window, and there was a scramble for for the, the proper camera with the proper settings and the proper film to, yeah, I think you, yeah, yeah, I think you're right, right, right. Well, of course, you know, there's no gravity, so there's no up and down. You do whatever you want with that. Okay, one more question, Paul. Yeah, seven or eight. Well, you could say that because of that, 
they are complementary perspectives. So it, it doesn't have to, that's the real answer to my initial round of questions. I think it's an artificial dichotomy. There is room for both human and non-human exploration, because, partly because of what you said. They can do different things well. So complementary perspectives on that.